0: Good morning, church, and welcome to the God Questions. The next seven weeks, we are going to rock this joint. We're going to talk about some of the great questions that everybody has on their minds about God. Before we launch this new series, today is Mission Sunday. Uh, one of the main values of our congregation is touching the world. We have missionaries all over the world that we support. Uh, Mark is leading a revival down in Guadalajara. I serve uh, a network of about a 100 churches down in Mexico and uh, Stephanie is our missions director. The gal that was just up here, she oversees our missions ministry, and she asked me to give you a report on uh, my ministry trip last week or two weekends ago. So I'm going to do that very briefly, and then we're going to jump into the series. So about 17 years ago, I was invited to go to these uh, this, this network, network of churches that was pioneered about 70 years ago. The apostle had died, and I went down there. And after a number of years, it became evident that the Lord was actually calling me to uh, step into this man's huge shoes and be the apostle over this organization. And so um, I've been going down there for 17 years. I love these people. They bust in from all over Mexico. Um, I was going to bring a picture. I totally forgot. Sorry about that. But there's like 40 pastors that show up to this national convention. About 500 congregants come from around uh, that area, of Mexico, South Mexico. We also have like 10 churches up here, in northern Mexico. We also do a northern convention. Anyway, about every five years... It's not just inspiring God's people and then equipping the pastors. He does a major paradigm shift about every five years, I've noticed. And um, it, it's, it's profound and it's humbling to be in a position where God is going to do something major through churches. And, um, and so the day before I was preaching, I was down in my motel room. And I'm just pacing back and forth. I spend all day in the motel room seeking God's face for the Friday night meeting and then the Saturday night meeting and then Sunday morning I meet with all the pastors. And so I have a blank slate, which is really intimidating when everybody buses in and they're waiting to hear what God has to say through you and you have no idea what it is. And so I pace and I pace and I pace and I pray and I pray and I pray and I I finally settle down, trusting that God's going to speak to me. And I was walking back and forth in the room. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and I was thinking, oh, God, you know, when you're 55, it's not that impressive anymore. But the, I got a revelation. Yeah. And here was the revelation. As I had my hands up, I was worshipping. I saw myself in the mirror. I almost started laughing out loud because the thought struck me, the revelation struck me, that we are nothing but frail, limited human beings. And for us to think that we can produce anything supernatural is such a laughable matter that we think we're so important that we think we could actually do something that advances the kingdom of God in the area of the supernatural. And I mean, it was such a revelation to me that anything that happens in our lives that is beyond the natural has nothing to do with us other than showing up and being obedient. And I just knew once God gave me that revelation, I knew He was going to do something powerful. And then He gave me the revelation of what was happening with the organization. And that is that the older generation was going to transfer the mantle to the next generation. And so in that meeting, I'm going to go back here and get my phone so that I have my clock. In that meeting, I asked everybody who was over 40, who felt like they had something from God, something that they had honed out over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of their lives. If they had something they felt like they had from God to give to the next generation to please stand up. And so you get a bunch of people standing up, a couple hundred people. And then I had them declare, I have something from God to give the next generation. I said, sit down. Now the next Everybody under 40 who feels like they want something of God from the previous generation stand up. And then I thought on Elijah and Elisha and the transfer of the mantle. Well, about 10 minutes before the end of my message, all of a sudden I felt I was preaching and it was good. Mario's translating for me. And all of a sudden I felt this, whoop, it was like an upgrade, right? Like John 2.0. And I thought, what just happened? And I mean, my preaching got stronger. The clarity of revelation, the people's responses was, was uh, heightened. Well, I didn't know what it was. The next morning, I'm ready to talk to all the pastors and, and train them on being mothers and fathers, not just pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles because that's how the mantles transfer us from spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers to spiritual sons and daughters. Right before I talk to the pastors, I see this young man. He's one of our pastors. He's about 35 and he's back there gnawing on uh Mario's ear and I went back and I said, what's going on? He wasn't physically gnawing on his ear. You know what I mean by that, right? Okay, great. I know you have to clarify. And he said, last night when you were preaching, I was just standing back against the back wall, just really quiet. And he said, all of a sudden, I saw a light shaft come down from heaven and strike you. And then it shot right out of your chest and pinned me to the wall. And I started crying out to God. And he said, I have not slept all night long. He said the Holy Spirit was just on me all night long. He could barely talk. He was so... And the whole time I was training the pastors and teaching them, he's back in the back row, just kind of like shaking like this, right? I had him share this with the pastors because I knew exactly what it was. It was a supernatural sign that what I was teaching on is exactly what that organization is entering into. And that was the mantle from the older generation, which I am a part of, because I just got my first senior citizen discount, uh, yesterday at the movie theater on Friday with my family, he said, sir, would you like the, the senior citizen discount? I said, no. Who are you talking to? Who do you think you're talking to? And then I caved because it was only $8.50 to get in, right? I was like, I crossed the line, man, and got my discount. It's cheaper than all my kids. But this young man got a transfer. A supernatural impartation from one generation to the next, and that's where the organization is for the next five to ten years. That'll be the transition process of the older men and women transferring to the younger. Isn't that powerful? You can't make that stuff up. You can't fabricate that. That is all supernatural. I think I'm more excited about it than you are. That are you guys? Is that exciting? Is that exciting? It relates to you too. There's a mantle transferring in this house too. Right? Okay, let's pray and see if the God question series is any better. All right, let's go. God, thank you so much for who you are and who we are in you. We pray, God, for everyone in this place, everyone watching online, everyone listening, that if they're sons and daughters of yours already that this information will equip all of us to answer good questions with good solid answers we also pray for those lord who are investigating whether you're real or not that this information will persuade and convince them through logic and fact and reasoning that you really do exist and that they'll come to come to know you and know that you love them and that you sent your son to die for their sins so they can know you for eternity Lord, we pray you bless this entire series. In Jesus' mighty name and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to teach as I open my mouth. Alright, you guys ready? Alright, here we go. The last twenty years, Hal Seed, who's the author of the series, has done surveys to see what people ask are asking about God in our culture. Here are the top six questions. Number one, is God real? Two, is the Bible true? Three, do all roads lead to heaven? Four, how can God allow suffering if he's a good God? Five, which is right, evolution or creation? And six, what happens when I die? You're going to ask these questions, be asked these questions. Some of you might even have some of these questions rolling around in your own mind, even as we walk with God. And this will be a great series to worship God with our minds. So, the seventh Sunday, we're going to have an open, open, uh, open q a right so you're going to be allowed to ask any questions you want myself and mark and Les meredith who's one of the teachers in the house we're going to be up here and we're going to do our best to answer whatever questions you throw out so invite friends to every one of these sunday sermons so but before we talked about whether the bible's true and about other religions and what heaven's going to be like we have to answer the question is god real because if god isn't real all those other questions don't matter right So, let's start our investigation by looking back 3,000 years. King David was the general of God's earthly army. He brought um, economic prosperity, geographical expansion, and unity and peace throughout the entire nation of Israel. And one day, David was reflecting on the awesome evidence of God. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 19.1. If you get your Bibles out on your phone or you can watch up here on the overhead. Psalm 19.1. Read the scripture out loud with me. Come on. Do it with gusto. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Then he continues on. Let's say this out loud together. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Keep going. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Day and night, the sun and its consistency, the way it gives heat to the world, it all points to God. This beautiful, masterful universe screams that there is a God. How many of you have ever just been awestruck by a moment of beauty in God's creation? I remember when I was a teenager, we used to go camping at the Mogollon Rim in Arizona. It's a a a a 12,000-foot plateau. And I remember we'd go camping there, and I'd be in my backpack, just laying there. And I'd look up. You could not see black in the sky, not a speck of black. It was all stars, as far as you could see, north, south, east, and west. And I used to just, I couldn't sleep. It was breathtaking. Is there a God? The stars say there is. But everyone wonders about God from time to time because it requires faith. Hebrews 11 says this, Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Now, if you think faith is for the weak, I mean, think about how often you use faith every day. You invest money in the stock market with faith that you won't lose it all. You start a new job with faith that they are going to pay you at the end of a couple weeks. You get married having faith that it's going to last a a lifetime. You woke up this morning with faith there would be enough air for you to breathe. Hoping that there will, by the end of the day, be enough air for you to survive. But the reality is this is not blind faith. None of that is blind faith. You don't you don't invest in a company until you get the company's prospectus. You you don't join a company and work for a company until you first have an interview with the boss and they make a contract with you about when they're going to pay you. You don't get married unless there's a little bit of research done on the forefront. Do you know what my wife did, Mark, you know what Hope did. I didn't know this until after we got married, but she called a couple of my best friends who were also on staff with me at the church I was working at, and she she, she researched me. She's a scientist. She's a research scientist, and I was a little bug in her petri dish. I mean, she checked me out. What she doesn't know is I paid them off, but don't tell her. She's working in the children's church this morning, but you don't get married unless there is some strong evidence that your spouse is a good person and... The reason you believe there's going to be enough air today is because you've been breathing it for as long as you've been alive. And so these these steps of faith you take are really based on history, evidence, facts, reasoning, and logic. God set it up this way. He set a world of vast, complex, logical, and scientific structure that is beautiful and masterful. Here's the truth creation is one of the first evidences of the existence of God. So for those of you who come today curious about God's existence, or for those that are asking questions, or your co-workers, or your friends, or your neighbors ask questions, just take note. Because we are going to look at three of the five classical arguments that philosophers have used for hundreds and hundreds of years. So let's look at three classic arguments so when somebody says to you you know prove to me that god exists don't get nervous don't just say well i just knew it in my heart i'm going to give you three classical arguments that you can use not to not to win an argument but to win a soul can i say that again our job is not to win arguments but to win souls to draw people to the god who created them and loves them And he did not leave us with just feelings and blind faith. God has made it scientific and logical and reasonable to believe in him. Now, once I give you these three arguments, I will also like to invite you, when somebody says, prove to me God exists, turn it right back and say, and I mean this not to argue with them, but simply to have a rational, logical conversation, say, prove to me that he doesn't. I believe there is more logical, rational, historical scientific proof that god exists than that he doesn't exist i believe it takes more faith to believe god doesn't exist than then he does exist so let's look at these three logical rational arguments philosophers have used for years the number first the number one and you have uh uh, notes in your bulletin i made a little half sheet of notes you can fill in the blank there the first one is the teleological argument that is the existence of stuff the fact that stuff exists is a real problem for the atheists. See, if nothing existed, you wouldn't have to explain where it came from. But the fact that stuff exists is a real problem. I mean, The universe exists. We live in it. We see it. We feel it. You can touch it. You can breathe it. It's here. The question is, how did it get here? Let's use logic. The law of cause and effect teaches us for every effect, there has to be a cause. Will you say that out loud with me? For every effect, there has to be a cause. Okay, elbow the person next to you hard enough for them to feel it. If nobody's next to you, just pinch yourself hard enough for you to get mad at yourself. Just go ahead and do it. Pinch yourself really hard. Elbow them. Like, okay, what was the effect? Yeah, that hurt, right? What was the cause? Right, the jerk next to you. Kind of like when you, slam your, when you slam your thumb in a door or something, what do you do? Ugh, you punch the door, right? The effect was your thumb is throbbing. Unfortunately, the cause was yourself. But we're going to blame it on the door, right? Because you don't want to punch yourself in the head after you already slammed your thumb on the door. But there's cause and effect. It is a law. This shirt right here. Isn't it a nice looking shirt? it It says the gathering place with a nice logo on. Now, how did this shirt get here? I mean, was there a designer? Yes. Thank you, David Drops. Was there a printer? Yes. Thank you, David Drops. And on the back? Thank you, Pastor John and Mark and Jan. This shirt was designed by a designer. It's obvious. You would not look at this shirt and think that it all came together by itself, randomly. This is cause and effect. For every effect, there is a cause. Everything that exists has a cause of how it got there. And this leads us To the second logical argument that God exists. And that's the cosmological argument. And that is that this nature we're talking about, this stuff, has a specific nature to it. it's called the argument of contingency, which is, it is dependent on something else. Nothing in the universe is independent. It's all dependent on something else. One of the possible explanations of how everything got here is that it was self-created. It created itself. But it doesn't follow logically, does it? Because everything in the universe is dependent on something else to exist, like trees. Trees need oxygen. They need oxygen to exist. They need oxygen to survive and thrive. They needed oxygen to even be created in the first place. Or the earth. The earth needs the sun. But the sun needs the solar system. It needs gravity. It needs a whole host of photo and electrochemical reactions to be able to exist. The Golden State Warriors. They needed Kevin Durant to beat the Cleveland Cavaliers, Cavaliers and LeBron James, right? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And 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 the Golden State Warriors need Steph Curry to win. But they need an owner to own them and pay them. And they need a league to be a part of. And they need other teams to play or else it just all doesn't exist. Everything is dependent on something else. Everything we observe around us is not self-caused or self-reliant. In fact, the reality is everything we see around us, we can conclude did not exist originally. It now exists. And eventually, it will not exist anymore. So if everything we observe is dependent on something else and not independent or self-caused, we have to ask, the law of dependency asks this question, if all that exists is dependent, fragile, and temporary, who or what is responsible for all of these dependent objects and beings? Okay, now, Let me ask you to do a question. Let me ask you to do an exercise. Will you close your eyes for a moment? I want you to use your imagination. Nobody's going to steal your wallet, so don't get nervous. Just close your eyes. Imagine all of creation. The earth, the solar systems, the galaxies, the stars. See it it all. And now pull way back and put it all inside of a big circle. Draw in your mind, draw a big circle around the circumference of all of creation. You see it? The second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy, says that everything inside the circle that you see, all of creation, is slowly headed toward non-existence. Not only does it need something or someone in order to exist, but at some point, it will stop existing. So, you can now look at me. So here's the question. Where might the thing that caused all of this dependent stuff to exist in the first place be located? Inside or outside the circle? I mean, doesn't it make sense if everything inside the circle, and this is the second law of thermodynamic dynamics, it's a scientific fact, it's a law that you leave something alone and it's going to deteriorate. Like a car, buy a brand new car and just park it outside and leave it out there for a hundred years. What's it going to look like? A hundred year old car. I like Gary, he's old school. Can we detail that a little bit? It's going to rust with the elements, it's going to deteriorate, the metals are going to rust. The rubber is going to get fried by the sun. The electronics are going to wear out. And it's just going to deteriorate. Leave your house alone. Leave our house alone for about a day. And it looks like an atomic bomb went off, right? But leave it alone and all the dust is going to come and it's just going to start to deteriorate. Leave food alone. It deteriorates. That's the law of Entropy. So it's just the opposite of the law of evolution that says we're evolving and becoming better. The law of entropy says we are devolving. So we're dependent on something outside of ourselves to exist. By contrast, what's outside of the circle must be independent, self-caused, and self-reliant. A being that is unlimited and all-powerful. That's why the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. God is saying, look at my creation. It screams at how awesome I am and how much I love you. I remember when I was 19 years old, I'd just given my life to the Lord. And I was just filled with wonder and awe and peace and contentment. I remember how empty I was. And how I I lived my teenage years with this question mark. Why are we here? Why do I exist? Why does anything matter? Why go to school? Why get a job and get money and then pay your bills and then die? I mean, why? And when I gave my life to Christ, He put in me this sense of contentment, peace, and purpose. Well, I was partnering with a guy who was an atheist, and we used to have these amazing conversations. And I remember one morning He picked me up and I said, Man, I saw the sunrise this morning. It was so awesome. He said, it's just a hot ball that just rises up out of the atmosphere and it's just going to eventually, you know, cease to exist and burn out. And I thought, that is so sad. I said, you know the difference between you and I? You look at that sunset and you think, well, that's pretty, but it's just there. I look at that and say, my dad is crazy awesome, man. Creation is here for us to worship God by looking at it and saying he's amazing. Not to eliminate God from the equation. He did not give us our brains to eliminate him from the equation, but rather to investigate him and be in awe of him. Now let's take it a step further. Rather than going way out into the galaxies, let's come a little closer home and let's do a little microanalysis. This here is a Pepsi can full of Pepsi. And I'm going to explain to you how this got here, okay? Uh, millions of years ago, there was an explosion that came from nowhere and from nothing. And this big gargantuan rock came v- hurling through the atmosphere. And when it slowed down and it cooled down, then this warm, syrupy uh, liquid just came out, of, came out of it. And then a million of years later, this aluminum came out of the water and then it shaped itself around the liquid, and it fits perfectly into the hands of a human being who would have evolved millions of years later. And then what's interesting is that uh, this little tab right here was formed millions of years later, and it has this little pole thing right here that you can just open it like that and just drink out of it. It is amazing. Then millions of years later, red, white, and blue paint fell from the sky and it fell onto the can and it wrote the letters P-E-P-S-I. And we know that it has some deeper meaning because you see them all over the world. They're everywhere. And they've been around for ages. And and the primordial force also that created this also knew to put a little um, trademark right there inside the P. And you know that it is that that it that is a primordial residence all throughout the universe because people say things like that it's the joy of cola and it's the choice of a new generation now how many scientific explanations of the nature of matter and the origins of the universe would i have to give to you convince you that this happened by chance what are the odds that something this complex and comfortable and attractive might have come about by a result of random collision of molecules. It's just too carefully designed. I believe there were some smart people that sat in a boardroom and thought about the design, the shape, the size, the taste, the color, the logo. And then they said, let's make sure everyone on the planet gets a drink of one. Let's look at another example the banana. Now, this is amazing. On the back of it, there's three ridges and up front, there's two ridges and it's a little, has a slip surf, a, a, you know, a, a sticky non, non slip surface. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. And it's got a little pull tab, right? And when you pull it, it breaks right into three or four little pieces and fits right over your hand. Isn't that amazing? And it's got a little tip on it and it faces your face, so it's perfect for eating. not that amazing? And it's biodegradable. So when you throw the peel away, or if the banana just falls to the ground, it eventually, it's self-designed so that it will enrich the soil, so other fruit-bearing plants and trees will actually be able to use it for nutrition to continue to grow. So it's a never-ending source of nutrition and fruit. Isn't, isn't that amazing? I didn't eat breakfast. So I'm going to just go ahead and enjoy this. Now you remember how Psalm 19 said that the heavens declare the glory of God. I'm going to argue that the tropical jungles do too. They scream that God exists. I mean, it's so intricate. Look at that. The way that He designed it. It not only shows that God is smart, it also shows that He cares for His creation. The way He has created the earth and all that's in it works for us. It's for our good. It's like a father that was preparing life for his children. If you want a verse to share with a friend... That supports this. Look what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, like the Pepsi company, their invisible qualities, their invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, their marketing ability, have been clearly seen by the Pepsi can, being understood from what has been made so the people are without excuse. You see, believing in God is logical. I remember having a conversation with an atheist here where he came in our congregation and after the service we were talking and he said he just doesn't believe in God, there's no evidence. I said, isn't this an amazing theater that we get to be in? He goes, yeah, it's actually really attractive. I said, isn't this wonderful? I said, you know, you see all the lights and you see all these wonderful comfortable seats and you see the aisles and the doors right where they are and the stage and all this and all, it's just amazing, all the instruments up here. I said, did you know that this just all randomly came together by collision of molecules and evolved over time? And we just showed up and we get to use this building. And he looked at me like, and I looked at him like, why would we call a person an idiot that would deny that there was a designer who thought of this theater in their mind first, then wrote it down on a blueprint, then handed it to an architect who handed it to a builder, who handed it to subcontractors who had a foreman that ran all the subcontractors for the electricians and the the drywallers and the carpenters and and the chair people and the lights and all that. Put it all together. Why would we... Why would we say clearly a room like this, a building had a designer, you idiot, but the universes that are vastly more complex does not. What is that really about? And here's the third and last argument. The first argument is the teleological argument, that is, stuff exists. You gotta explain it. The second is the nature of the stuff, and that is it's dependent on something else to exist, and it is devolving. The law of entropy, it is becoming non-existent eventually. Like many of this, all the stars you see, they burned out light years ago, and that's just the afterburners that we see. They burned out. Everything is devolving. And thirdly is the moral argument. My sense of right and wrong. How many of you have been following these protests of these high school students about gun laws? How many of you seen that on the news? You see these, right, okay. Well, wh- where's that coming from? What's that about? They believe that something wrong has happened and that our laws are wrong and causing it, the cause and effect. So on the inside of them, they're saying, something has to be made right. Where did this sense of right and wrong come from? Did it come out of that brown syrupy liquid that oozed out of nothingness? Where did our conscience come from? C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Mere Christianity. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Anthropologists say this is a universal phenomenon. Morals can vary from person to person and culture to culture, but everyone has morals. Let me ask you this. How many of you know that you have fallen short Of your internal moral standard at some time in your life. Raise your hand. Every day. Thank you, thank you, Bella, for helping Pastor Mark be honest. She had to raise his hand. I apologize on behalf of the teaching staff here at the Gathering Place Church. Where did this higher moral standard come from? You say, well, my parents taught me. Where did they get it from? Well, their parents taught me. Where did they get it from? Well, they got it from church. Where did they get it from? Well, they, where did they get that? You have to keep backing up and backing up and backing up. Where did this higher moral standard come from? I remember one time I was sitting there with uh, a relative of mine who at the time was an atheist, evolutionist, and we're watching this TV show called Mark and Ollie. Mark and Ollie were a couple Brits that would go find a, a tribe, a people group, who had never had an had outside influence ever? No Bible, no Quran, no Buddha, no Confucius, no Muhammad, no other culture. And they lived with them for six months, and the film crew was there obviously to film the whole thing. And one night, the whole village was in an uproar, and so Mark and Ollie went up to them and said, "What happened?" And one person said, well, the chief took another man's wife here in the village and they kicked the man out of the village and everybody is upset about it. I'm sitting next to my relative. How do they know that's wrong? What are they so upset about? Well, how do they know that taking another man's wife is intrinsically wrong. Nobody taught them. They just know it. Where does that come from? Well, let's look in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, and the Bible tells us, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. That is our ability to rationalize because God has put this higher law in us. That's his moral standard. It's his nature of right and wrong. He put it on the inside of us. as a higher moral standard than we can attain to, which is why we feel shame, why we feel guilt, why we blame shift. I didn't do it. Oh, my gosh. If I hear that in my house another time, I'm just going to fling myself off a cliff, right? Somebody did it. <laughs> right? The cat can't open my trunk of my car and climb inside of it and forget to close it so the light stays on and burns out the battery in my car. The law of cause and effect says somebody's getting whooping. And I'm going to be the cause. I promise you that. See, this higher moral standard, we know we've fallen short of it. It happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell from their intimacy with God, they fell below the moral standard. The Bible says it this way. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. That's why on the inside of us, we always feel like we're not doing enough. We're not enough. And we blame shift. So let's put some of these things together. The circle of contingency That everything's dependent on something else leads us to conclude that the universe was created by the uncreated creator, an unlimited, eternal, all-powerful being. Even the details of the universe, like the banana, shows us that our creator is very smart, very creative, very innovative, and very loving and caring because he creates things that work for our existence. You put these together and we see we have an all-powerful, all-knowing, independent self-sourced eternal loving creator now compare this to the alternative the non-creationists sees all of this that we've talked about today and they believe the world came together by random chance the collision and evolution of molecules and the survival of the fittest now which one of those is easier? To have faith in. Because they both take faith. I believe that God does not exist. Prove it to me. What's your evidence? I believe God does exist. Prove it to me. What's your evidence? Well, there's stuff. (laughs) Right? And the stuff is all dependent because entropy says it's all devolving. So it's dependent on you to keep it together. And you have something on the inside of you that is your moral compass. What do we do with people who have no conscience? You put them in prison. They're called sociopaths or psychopaths. They can hurt someone. They can steal something and feel no remorse. They are dangerous. Having a conscience is a gift from God. It keeps us from hurting one another and hurting ourselves. A personal story, actually, of my mother. Some of you have heard this, some of you haven't. I'm going to close. My mom raised us Catholic, and I thank her for it because I knew that God existed. I never doubted His existence because of my upbringing and being in God's presence. But she had the most difficult time believing He was a personal God. How could the God who created these galaxies, and we are a baby... In the galaxies, we're like little ants crawling on this little dirt clod in the midst of these. I mean, galaxies are still being created today at 186,000 miles per second. God said, light be! And it's still being created this to this day. They're finding new galaxies and solar systems. She said, how could this God be a personal God and care about me? That's what David even wrote in the Bible in Psalm 8. He said, why would God be mindful of man? And so she's sitting in a restaurant at the bar area waiting for her table. And she was with a friend and they're talking. And this half lit dude walks up to her, taps her on the shoulder and says, excuse me, true story. My mom doesn't lie. And she said, he said, I don't know why God's using me, but he wanted me to come over here and tell you that he's a personal God. And she looks at him. She told me I had never told a single soul. Because she felt bad about her doubt. In her mind, she had wrestled with this and wrestled with this and wrestled with this. She turned to see what her friend's thinking. And when she turned back, he was gone. I don't know if angels get lit or not. But what I do know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know. As he was there and then he wasn't. And that settled it for her forever. The Bible says when God created everything he called it good. And then he created you and I and he called it very good. This will take care of all self-esteem issues. God, look. You're better than a banana. If God took the time, did you know my daughter taught me something just recently? Did you know that you do this and then the banana, you put your finger in it? Look at that. It breaks apart into three or four little parts. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You break it apart, put it right on top of your granola. It's amazing design. You are so much better than a banana. Or an ape. Or slime. Or a random collision of molecules. God made us. He made us good. But we fell. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 6.23 For the wages of sin, which is falling short of God's moral standard, is death. It is not doing good works to make up and balance the scales. That's not how it works. Everybody say this last part of this verse together. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of sin and death being part of our world, many people are blind to the truth. That God exists and that He loves them. In order to be restored into the relationship, you need to come through His Son Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And the restoration of your relationship with God. Maybe today the things I've said have made sense. Maybe you're willing to admit that God does exist. That He's the creator, even of you. That He created you to be with Him. There's no other reason to be here than to be in relationship with the God who created you and designed you so beautifully and intricately and masterfully. The Bible says you're God's poem. Never made another one like you. No one sings like you. No one writes like you. No one walks like you. No one laughs like you. No one imagines the things you imagine. He's inviting you into a relationship with him, which means he's inviting you home. Would you like to do that? If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ before, for forgiveness of your sins and coming to God, would you like to do that today? Look at the Bible says in John 1, 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So what would keep you back from coming to him? Pride? Fear? uh, Loss of control? You know, I believe that most people believe in God. I think the real issue is, do I trust him? And what I want to say to you today is, God created all the universes, including you, and he holds every fiber together by his own being including you, and He made you, and He holds it all together. Can you trust Him? Absolutely. So for those today that do believe in God, you do trust Him, then we just worship Him. We serve him and serve his kingdom and serve humanity with the gifts he's given to us. And we do everything we can to have logical, rational, reasonable answers to really good questions about God. And that's what this series is about. And that's what our opening message today was about. And there's a little homework assignment I'm going to give to you today as we close up. One, pick up a copy of the God Questions book in the lobby. They're $10. All the connect groups, all the small groups are following along this series. So this week when you go to your small group, uh, there's a, a book out front, $10, and it's a daily devotional. You read six chapters. The chapters are like a page and a half. And every day this week, you will meditate and do a little reading on this topic right here, Is God Real? Then you're going to come together with your connect groups, and you're going to discuss this. It'll be a great equipping for you to be able to share with friends that don't believe in God yet. It'll also be uh, great for those you invite to your small groups who can come closer to God. And then meet with a small group this week. Read chapters 1 through 6 in the God Questions book. Invite someone to join you next week for this, for Is the Bible True? Which is what we'll hit next week. And then memorize Psalm 19.1. For those of you today, though have not given your life to Christ yet. Today is your day. God is wooing you. God is calling you. God is drawing you. He knows you by name. He made you. And He wants to be in relationship with you. But you have got to say yes. So I'm going to ask if you'll just close your eyes with me for a moment. And I want us to pray a prayer. You're in here today and you're ready to come to this God who created you and loves you and is calling you today. Would you just invite him in right now? Just tell him right where you are. Say, God, I do believe in you. And I do believe that you sent your son to die for my sins because I have fallen short of your moral standard. And I'm giving my life to your son today. Tell them right there, right where you are, I'm giving my life to Jesus. And I receive the forgiveness of my sins. Now I want to pray that His Spirit comes upon you. God, for those who just prayed that prayer today and gave their life to your Son, I thank you for the peace that just entered their soul. And I pray your presence and your Spirit now come upon and rest upon them. And give them confirmation from your presence that they are now your son or your daughter and they will spend eternity with you forever in Jesus mighty name everybody said amen go ahead don't pat a cake